Welcome to the Swapflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am betrayed. No, I am Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> I just told Boomer that we're watching the Scream movies on the podcast next week, and he's taking it harsh- harshly, I think. I Yeah, I mean, I was I was really looking forward to having our discussion in this group about it. I, ha- I wanted to share my thoughts about how much Scream 3 reminds me of Wes Craven's earlier work especially in so far as how it takes like a weird step into including dream sequences and how I think that that breaks the reality of the series, um, but does make them more like the Nightmare on Elm Street series. But I guess I'll just have to save that for my journal. To be fair, I originally pitched uh, this episode as something to do with the other crew, and you, you said we were going to write about it, and it never came together. That's fair. I had to pull the trigger. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, you're still talking about writing about it, so you can yeah. always it could still come happen. back. Yeah, boomer. It's 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 all fine. I don't want to <laughs> ruin. I don't want to ruin our last episode together by making it all about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm series finale today. <laughs> series. No! Unexpected series finale of betrayal <laughs> tonight. <laughs> someone dies. <laughs> oh no! No, it's fine. It's fine. I'll live. Um, you know. Allie, it was your birthday. What, what have you been watching? So, for my birthday, I um, went to the park and I tried to fly a kite and it wasn't windy enough, but it got off the ground oh. and stayed in the air a little bit. It was kind of, it was nice though. It was fun. I had a good time. Saw some friends. We all hung out in the park. Uh, then I came back here and... And on TV, I watched the new, like, hour-long, kind of weird, like, Animal Planet-style documentary on Netflix, Inside the Mind of a Cat. Uh, (laughs) That's not the one movie I've watched, by the way, y'all. I just thought I would throw it out there that it is (sighs) silly, and if you're looking for something, like, light, like, old-school Animal Planet TV-wise, you know. You could learn about cats. Do you take like a um, magic school bus ride into the cat's mind, or um... no? Unfortunately, it's more metaphorical. (laughs) Okay, it has that like very like dynamic narrator voice where it's like all zany, you know. Even though you know we're talking to these like cat scientists that are really kind of cool. I think my favorite thing is they have this like pair of cat psychologists who do a lot of really really cool like animal behavioral studies and i found super super interesting but there's also you know your standard crazy cat people in there that are not scientific and you know anthropomorphizing which is fine cats don't care so i watched that on my birthday it was nice um but I also watched the uh, 1953, like, in Technicolor Noir Niagara. That's a Marilyn Monroe movie? Yeah, it's Marilyn Monroe. It's, I thought it was a lot of fun. I think also it must have been kind of a big influence on Vertigo. Like, there's a lot of heights and spiraling staircases and even a freaking bell tower. And, you know, your standard, like swapped identities and intrigue but it has a lot of really really cool on location shots of Niagara Falls which I don't know it's just cool to see 
all of that in this Technicolor and in the 1950s when it's just a... I've never been to Niagara Falls in the now, but I can't imagine it looks the same way it did then. So I, I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was really good and I had a lot of fun with it. I, I enjoyed it. What's the criminal angle? Is it like a murder mystery? Yeah, it like a- it's kind of a murder mystery. Like, you know, disgruntled wife tries to kill husband, sort of noir. Your basic plot line when you have two married characters in a noir, essentially. But there's also, you know, your standard like shots where the, the blinds are across people's faces and Oh my yeah. favorite. I know, I know it's so good. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I had I, I liked it. I would recommend it. I mean also, you know, Marilyn Monroe. She's a babe. She's like a doll. So yeah. That's about as exciting as my life has gotten. Um, Boomer, what have you been doing and watching before you found out about this horrible betrayal you're experiencing? I did not expect this to be a big deal. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that too, Brandon. I was just that trying to too. ramp up to Halloween and like get excited for spooky season. It's going to be like a soft launch. <laughs> I did not think I was breaking any hearts today. It's all right. It's all right. Oh, no. You know, it, today is like the... I, because I am online, even though this is not a thing that I enjoy, I'm not going to yuck other people's yum, although I think it is ridiculous. Today is also the first day of pumpkin spice season, so instead of a pumpkin spice latte, I guess I'm just going to enjoy my pumpkin spice lies. Um, <laughs> it's cool. I'll get over it. So I... I'm continuing with my Coen Brothers watch. Uh, but the next two after Fargo are both movies that I've seen hundreds of times, possibly not even exaggerating. Um, the Big Lebowski, which, you know, I had as like a dorm room poster at boarding school when I was 16 and have seen at least 30 times, right? And then, oh, brother, yeah. where, where art thou, which I owned on VHS, um, there was one summer where it was just back and forth between those two. I would, uh, between, um, oh, brother, where art thou and, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I had acquired on VHS from the Edwin McKay, uh, used bookstore in Raleigh, which is now long out of business. But, uh, I would just watch, oh, brother, where art thou? while I played around in the attic and then rewind it and then stick in Buffy and then just cycle between those two over and over again. I'm not sure uh, with summer ending and this is supposed to have been the summer of Coen brothers. I probably won't make them all into the summer, but I did go ahead and decide that I was going to skip over those two for this rewatch just because I'd seen them so many times. And then the next film on that list was the film, um, the man who wasn't there which I have never seen and I still haven't because my buddy came over. And as soon as I saw that it was in black and white um, with this particular friend, I was like, there is no way he's going to pay attention all the way through this (laughs) if it's in black and white. So instead I was like, Hmm, what's one of the other ones that I've seen and enjoyed and know he'll enjoy watching. So we skipped ahead to 2016's hail Caesar, which I think is actually an underrated masterpiece. I'll say it. I liked it more than Fargo. Wow. That one and Barton Fink are my favorite, too. See, I like Hail Caesar, and I like Barton Fink, but Fargo is still my top. But yes, I, I do enjoy Hail Caesar like quite a bit. 
Raising so. Arizona is still my favorite, I think. Yeah. But Raising Arizona too. Ugh. Hail Caesar is so good. And people really I remember people really not being super enthused about it at the time. Yeah, I don't think people really got on its wavelength somehow. I'm not sure like It's one of those things where you walk out of the theater knowing that it's actively bombing and you're like, what more do people want? Like it's got the old Hollywood spectacle. It's really smart and like philosophical and fucking funny throughout and like beautiful costumes and just like it's so I, funny. if this is not a hit then what like yeah <laughs> how much better of a meal could you prepare for someone who like pushes the plate away like i, I don't really know what else a movie could do uh <laughs> yeah. to satisfy people and it still flopped it's so good it's yeah. so funny and i guess i'm surprised that people love the big lebowski and hate this one so much because to me i think this one is the most like I know that, you know, it's set at the same studio as Barton Fink, so in theory they relate to each other, but to me, it has the most Big Lebowski energy. Now, I guess it is true that almost all of them involve some kind of kidnapping and a ransom. Like, it's mm-hmm. a lot of them when you think about it. Yes. Um, there's a kidnapping and a ransom in most of their movies that I have seen at this point. Yeah. It's a plot point in Raising Arizona. It is a plot point, not so much a ransom in that one, but a kidnapping. It's a plot point in um, Fargo, obviously, The Big Lebowski also, obviously, and this one, there's a kidnapping, Mm -hmm. there's a ransom. And then I think what people were really turned off by were these like vignettes that take place in these old school Hollywood style movies where they just like, you know, you'll finish a scene that's part of the main plot. And then here's another scene with, you know, some some actor or actress that you just absolutely love here to um, come emerging out of the water or do a scene from Ben-Hur. And I guess people didn't get it. Or maybe it was just yeah, that in 2016, it... everybody was too stressed to, to, to pay much attention to Hail Caesar. But I loved it. It's so good. I don't know how anyone would not love at least the Channing Tatum yes. uh, sailor song about how they're all about to go get laid at sea yes. without all their dames around. Yeah. There's no dames. Great stuff. Mermaids don't have any gams. <laughs> Mermaids don't have any gams. The scene where Alden Ehrenreich's singing cowboy character is getting the, the dialogue coaching, the would that it were scene. Oh my God. It's so funny. I don't understand how you it's could not so great. absolutely love it. Like what, what else do you want? It's true. Like what, what else could anyone want? I just realized that I quote um, him in this movie, like all the time without really thinking about it. But every time I see, um, a gigantic moon. I go, lazy old moon. <laughs> like, just sort of reflexively. Like, it just sort of comes out yeah. of me. Yeah. Would that it were so simple is, uh, is, is a thing in this house, so. It's so good. In this house, we love singing cowboys, as has been well established. Yeah. Insofar as, you know, Angus T. Ambrose is a thing that exists in my soul. Um, I love it. I love the communists. I love how they're kind of goofy. I love the way that the submarine rises from the ocean. I really love the synchronized swimming sequence. I really enjoy Alden Ehrenreich doing lasso work with his spaghetti. 
<laughs> yes. Everything about it I love, and I can't, I was laughing so hard the whole time. This is only the second time I've seen it. And the first time I saw it was, you know, when it was first coming to like, you know, first coming to home ownership, you know, home video in 2017. It's just, I don't know. So good. Can't recommend it enough. Um, but before I say what the other thing that I watched is, I want to talk very briefly about a pretty amazing estate sale that I went to uh, this past weekend. So I have been making that like my Saturday habit lately. Now that I have a car again, I've been going like every week. And I don't think I told y'all this, but I, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, went to one out in, I guess I, should I say the town? It's just outside of where I live. Oh, well, I've been doxxed by now. Uh, I went to Pflugerville, and I wasn't sure about this particular estate sale because I had been to a couple already and had some really good finds, a really great Miss Marple DVD box set. Um, a few like late sixties Agatha Christie books that were first editions that this person had bought as well as two records. One of which was music from Cosmos, the Carl Sagan one from the seventies. And then also John Denver and the Muppets, because yes, why wouldn't I? Mm -hmm. Um, But this other estate sale, I went out to it and I walk into this kitchen and there are six bins of Star Trek action figures from the 90s. Ew. Uh, like wow. 120 of them. Because that I was the other thing I told me wow. is they were $3 each. And the guy was like, I'll make you a deal. You know, there are probably about 120 of them. I'll sell you them for 300 And I was like, nah. And then I went back later and, and did. And then and then flipped them for a little bit of money. But nice. I... I did skim a few for myself since I was going to, including a Dr. Pulaski, a Yar, a Gul Dukat, you know, everybody's favorite Gul Dukat. You got like all of the most hated characters somehow. Those are the I ones don't I hate like. Yar, but yeah. I'm Everybody not a Pulaski hates Pulaski, fan but at all. I, I like her. I like her fine. She reminds me of my grandmother. Um, <laughs> and then this past weekend, now, a few weeks ago, I went to an estate sale and I walked in and this guy that I honestly didn't know from Adam was like, oh, you're late, you know, but I, you're fast. You're always fast. I know what you like. You can go ahead and run through here, even though we're about to close up. And I was like, what? Who? So I guess I've <laughs> Am I become, dreaming? <laughs> I've become more, they're starting to know who I am, the people who run the estate sales. And of course, oh this gosh. person I have now basically made friends with, because um, we're going to fast forward in this story in a minute, but fast forward to this past weekend it's the second to last estate sale that i'm hitting on my route and i walk in the door and it's that guy again and his name is john and he's from hammond if you can believe it because we ended up exchanging numbers and he was like 985 i was like is that is that 985 so he was like you're gonna love this place uh the lady was an antiques dealer and before that she was an nbc executive Whoa. So I went through and I got some like glassware and then a couple of records. And then I got, uh, and this is why I'm bringing this up because we did Steel Magnolias, at, not Steel Magnolias, um, Fried Green Tomatoes as a movie of the month, not terribly long ago. But there were three Fanny Flag novels there. Oh, nice. And I bought them and I brought them home and I opened them up and they were all inscribed. Wow. 
So I'm like, oh my God, I'm holding an actual Fanny Flag novel that Fanny herself touched. She held it in her hand. It has her signature inside of it. Now, knowing you, I would think you would be most enamored with her as a uh, game show guest. Oh, I mean, that's what I love her the most for. But I feel so <laughs> close to her holding that book. I mean, I know that she's like still alive. She's not, she doesn't really have a public life. She's like Angela Lansbury, where it's like she's perfectly content to just live outside of the public eye and bless them both. I hope they live forever. But yeah, I mean, she is, she is part of my dream match game like setup. Um, which I think that we've established before. Um, but yeah, I, I love her. I was so excited to have those novels and then so excited to find the inscriptions inside. But the other reason I bring it up is that in this group, I've previously told you about how back in May I went to Taylor, Texas and got a Spock Lives glass from the Taco Bell Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock promotion. Mm-hmm. And so this good. lady had a box and a half of glasses. They were clearly straight from the manufacturer because they said Star Trek tumblers on the box had never gone to a Taco Bell, had probably gone straight into this lady's <laughs> garage. So you're sending me one, right? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I bought those and then sold them to the same person that I sold all the Star no, Trek figures no. to. Make that um, money. I did. I did, girl. Make that I sure money. did. But there were I did I did keep one of those for myself as well. Because I don't need to have a full set of four. I have limited cabinet space and enough like glasses already. But I was like, oh, I have the Spock lives. I would love to have the Enterprise destroyed one, which I immediately put a picture of in our in our Discord chat as soon as it happened. But yeah, I just wanted to share that, you know, I'm doing great. Betrayal and all. Thriving. I'm still doing good. <laughs> I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It's fine. It's fine. You don't need me. It's fine. It's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's fine. Um, and and to get us back on topic, I will say, my buddy Dustin. Shout out to Dustin, who does not listen to this podcast. Hey, Dustin. He was talking about how he had seen a couple of clips from horror movies that he really wanted to watch the whole thing of. And he mentioned specifically some people on a dock. And I was like, oh, that's the raft from Creepshow. So this past Saturday, yes. after we all went out to the Tiki Bar, I put Creepshow on. And when the final segment I started, I was like, oh, wait, that's in Creepshow too. But yeah, I was, was going to say, say oh. it's in Creepshow too. But, yeah. <laughs> Which was the one that I owned on VHS, so it's clearer in my mind. But we did watch Creepshow, and I... I, I really like it. The the Stephen King starring segment is very bad. That's the one that, that sinks it for me, yeah. But all anthologies need one stinker yeah, they do. to balance it out. In this house, we love horror anthologies, so... You yeah, know, same I'm here. Where You could put out a trilogy of terror every year in this house. Yes. Be happy. Uh-huh. But yeah. Lately, they've been putting out a VHS every year. Uh, there's a new one coming to Shudder this month. They sure oh, have hey. been. They sure have. What's everybody's favorite uh, Creepshow sequence? The cockroaches. Ooh, that's hard. Uh, mm. Creepshow 2 has the, the hitchhiker one, right? Yes, that yes. is Creepshow 2. That one, the I raft, that one. and I forget the last one. Creepshow, <laughs> Creepshow 1, the Creepshow, has the wraparound segment with Joe Hill as the kid. Um, and then there's Father's Day. <laughs> 
with um where's my cake bedelia and then the horrible stephen king one and then the one where leslie nielsen buries ted danson in the sand oh yeah <laughs> um the, the cockroach one which is great and Love then it. and also um the one with adrian barbeau where she harasses dixie carter's husband until he lets her get eaten by a monster <laughs> i mean these all sound great in my memory i just like hate stephen king's performance so much it's that like so bad <laughs> and you thinking know, back on the movie i'm like you know creep show is all right it's got some great stuff it's got some bad stuff the bad stuff entirely in my mind is just stephen it's king. just the stephen king one i will say the crate is a little bit long too that's the one with adrian barbeau and while we were watching it and i was waiting for the raft segment i was like why is this movie so long which you know me that's not a common complaint for me normally i'm like oh it's been three hours and it's ending already but like legitimately this one this one clocks in at two full hours and i think that if you just eliminate that jordy verrill segment with with stephen king you cut like 12 minutes and you make the movie tighter and like much better see i don't think horror movies should be too long you know, I I say that as like a big fan of like the medium and the wailing, which are both two hours long. But you know, I just don't think most of them should be that long, unless they they're really good. They should stick to like a tight ninety. It depends on what you're doing. Like if if you just have like a singular monster and a few scare gags and you know a heightened sense of style, yeah, an eighty to ninety minute movie is perfect. But, you know, there are movies that do a lot with that slow building sense of dread. Creepshow is not that movie. No. No. Like, no, it is not. You need to be in not. and out on that one. Yeah. I think that I'm going to go ahead and say that I, even though I love the Roach one, I think it's the... the I, I hate the ending of the Buried in the Sand one. A little goofy, yeah. I, it's a little goofy, but I really enjoy the all of the creep leading up to the appearance of the monster the sort of zombies and you know i've seen the father's day segment the most because like you know that's the one that you see whenever you're like oh creep shows coming on tv i have a little time before i have to go where i'm going so you sit down and you watch you know that and and then you get wherever you're going so i've seen that one the most and I still really love it. I love that, like, setting-wise, it's very similar to, like, an episode of Murder, She Wrote. Like, there's a lot of Murder, She Wrote episodes that just start in this big house and the family is there together for some reason. And so it feels like the setup for that kind of thing, because it feels like we're getting a, a cast of characters for, like, a mystery for some reason. But nope, they're all just there to be slowly killed one by one by uh uh nathan grantham you know and him him uh, the sound of him hitting his cane on the table and screaming for his cake is something that you know i think about a lot it's a really good effective like way of using repetition to create sort of that dread so i'm gonna go ahead and recommend a uh, creep show and give it um a 4.2 because I'm averaging all the segments. <laughs> Brandon, um, aside from Screams 2, 3, and 4, what have you been watching? I also watched Scream 1. Oh. Um, 
I guess I'll just have to wait and listen to your full thoughts in the episode with the proper crew. It's not the proper crew. (laughs) It's a different crew. But I have been going to the movies a lot lately. And I I guess I could do one recommendation per both of you. Um, One of them is related to both Scream and some other things you've mentioned, like Murder, She Wrote and Agatha Christie. I saw Bodies, Bodies, Bodies in the theater. Oh, it's not a great movie, but it is a fun murder mystery, so I think you might enjoy it. It's got kind of the sassy, post-scream meanness of stuff like Jawbreaker and Drop Dead Gorgeous a little bit, where it's like a lot of humor about Gen Z bitchiness, especially like online tone policing and like moral policing among Zoomers. Uh, it's set during a hurricane party. In Florida, in this, like, mansion among all these, like, wealthy kids are all, like, coked out to the point of, like, psychosis, waiting for this hurricane to pass. And um, one of them dies during a murder mystery type game. You know, where, like, you know, I I think they call them, like, werewolf is, like, one of them or assassin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That kind of game. So one of them actually dies. And everyone freaks out trying to figure out who among them is the killer. And they get more and more violent. And then they start using more and more like online buzzwords, you know, like you're silencing me, you're so toxic, uh, things like that. That line of satire can be its like weakest point sometimes, like just the sort of like these kids are literally canceling each other. Look at all the bodies pile up like that's not its best strong suit, but it does have some funny moments. But what really surprised me was, like, at the end, it was, like, a really satisfying murder mystery. Like, I really liked the reveal at the end. Everything felt felt very earned. And it was, like, one of those endings that kind of made you want to rewatch the movie because it actually, like, played into the larger themes in a very satisfying way. That's, like, me and me and um, Hot Fuzz, where it's, like, oh, this right. works. This functions perfectly well as, like, an actual thing that it's parodying, like an actual version of it. Yeah, and it's, like, funny and clever in the same way that Hot Fuzz is, I think. Nice, but without being copaganda, which means I can finally enjoy something again. <laughs> That's true. There are no cops in this movie. Uh, it's just coked-out rich kids. Um, and and mm. honestly, I think the generational satire of it is a little off the mark. Like, I feel like it's actually kind of making fun of the online environment that millennials have created. And, like, I feel like a lot of Gen Z kids are kind of, like disconnecting from this style of like moral policing because it is so unfun to be online now. I think our generation is hopelessly addicted to it, but um, you know, kids kind of just log on for like makeup tips and like TikTok dances and absurdist recipes and shit. Like they're not really doing this kind of like canceling of each other anymore. No, but the, you know, they're, they're too busy getting radicalized by Andrew Tate. That's true. There, there are, pockets of them that are susceptible to this or that you know yeah. there, there were a lot of like teenagers going after sydney sweeney for having conservative relatives this week so maybe i'm completely off the mark myself but one smart thing about it is that you're, the pov character is actually like a working class like outsider who's like observing these vicious wealth class kids like tear each other apart kind of horrified so that that kind of helps a little bit and also i just like how mean all the girls are to each other like we were just talking about jawbreaker last time we recorded and there's a little bit of that flavor here where like it's like, wow, you could only 
hurt someone that way if you've known them since middle school and like knew the exact button to push to like you know tear them down in like three words yeah and uh the breakdown at the end with the characters who survive that long is like really delicious in that way like they get really vicious uh the worse the night gets and i guess my recommendation more for ali is the new george miller film three thousand years of longing oh i've got tickets for saturday night been wanting to see I that, guess I so. shouldn't say very much then if you're about to watch it because I think you'll enjoy it too I'm excited I will not see it in theaters so he was very proud to have it showing theatrically he did one of those like pre-real intros where he's like Aww. thanks for seeing this movie the way it's meant to be seen on the big screen I know uh, I, it's like well convince theaters to bring back mandatory masks and you know George Miller I'll give you my money uh, Fair enough. That's what I have to say because I'm upset at everybody being like, "You have to see it like this." And it's like, okay, well, you have to wear a mask. Yeah, I I don't disagree with you, and I have worn mine in every theater I've been to, and I will continue to do so. So I'm I get it. Yeah, I I don't know. I go back and forth about it. I'm like, uh, I want to see this movie real bad, but. I mean, it'll eventually yeah. be streaming somewhere. They can't hold it hostage forever. They said they were going to do that with Memoria, like never show it on any small screens. And then it was like, well, we have to send out screeners to critics. Mm-hmm. You know, some festivals are going virtual, so we have to do some of those. Mm-hmm. Like they really started like eroding on that. So I was going to um, say, scaled it back. Yeah. Uh, this one is worth seeing big and loud. It's got those like Tarzum terry gilliam style visuals because you know it's like a arabian nights style like fantasy movie are y'all buddies that you're calling tarzan singh by his first name that's how he built himself that's how he oh built okay himself. Oh, okay yeah, sorry tarzan. his first few movies he was always a one-namer yeah okay my also, that's know, my ignorance and i let it he show wants every, he wants everybody to be his friend i just i thought it would be i thought it was Hi, really tarzan. cool that you were like yeah tarzan my buddy I always respect when someone thinks that their brand is strong enough for them to be a one namer. Like I will always respect that yeah. kind of hubris. Like me. And I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> honestly, he did it, and you did it, Boomer. You you also did it, but he <laughs> did it bigger. Sorry, he did it with only two good movies. Yeah, <laughs> he's made a exactly. bunch of garbage, and he's. St- I still respect him as like one of the great visual stylist of my lifetime from, oh my from two, gosh, di- I know. two movies only i'm gonna need you to tell me which ones right the now. cell and the fall, fall for sure yeah. okay i've not seen immortals maybe i'm maybe i'm missing an extra one there no you're, no you're, all right <laughs> i would say probably not i would also say the fall is great the cell if is he great. only released the fall like you know could still be legendary three thousand years of longing though like has those anthology style fantasy stories that are all about the jinn's like former loves and it, it does reach those same kinds of visuals but it's more of a like uncanny cg thing than tarzan's like practical creations um i guess what i would say about it before i shut up about it is that um it's very talky like a lot of it is just tilda swinton and idris elba chatting in a hotel room and even when they're telling stories to each other and the camera cuts away to these like fantasy sequences they're constantly narrating it like an illustrated storybook so like just go in expecting something very chatty instead of something super immersive and um, i think you'll enjoy it it's like a very good conversational drama about storytelling and about loneliness 
and uh, I guess the power dynamics of <laughs> forming a relationship with a djinn that's under your control until you make three wishes. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I guess I won't say anymore because Boomer's about to watch it, and I think Ali should watch it whenever it's available on screen. saw the predator first i think by accident i heard like whispers of some sort of like show and tell happening and i saw people like slowly disappearing so i was like what's going on over there and i like snuck over i like looked in like in the woods i saw this like you know the creature and he was moving and the head and the mouth and i went i could take him (laughs) And that was what I said. For some reason, that was my instinct. Was like, oh, I could fight that. Like it was like far less intimidating than I had imagined. And then immediately was like, went back to like I feel like that was my like Naru brain. And then immediately went back to my brain. And I was like, no, that's wild. That's a giant monster. For this week, this week of my birth, I was lucky enough that the new movie in the Predator franchise, Prey, had come out this year. I don't know if. Any of our listeners remember from previous podcasts how badly I want to be friends with the Predator, but needless to say, I'm I'm into the, the franchise. I did not see the other movies before this. I've seen one and two, and then Alien vs. Predator, the first one. But I feel like this one and Predator, the first one, that's all you need of the franchise. Oh, really? I would really want to see two. I thought two looked like a lot two of fun. Two is fun, but it's not, I don't know. You're really going to like it, I think, when you see it. <laughs> yeah, you you, okay. you, you really will like, like it. it. I also like it. You're I, I, That's not an insult. I'm not, but no, okay. no. It is, it's, it's very you. I don't okay. dislike it. I just don't think it's as fun as it should be, I guess is my thing. I feel like it could be better, and I wanted it to be better than it was. But I bet if I rewatched it, I'd be I'd be into it. Um, so this one is based in the early 1700s. It is about a young Comanche girl who wants to be a hunter, like her older brother and her dad. But of course, you know, her place in society as a lady is to be a gatherer and a medicine lady. But she's desperately out to prove herself. She goes on a hunting trip with her brother, gets knocked out, and also sees the ship of the Predator crash, notices all of these strange things, animals skinned, animals running away, things that shouldn't be happening. Turns out there's the Predator. She takes it on as her test to prove that she's ready to be a hunter. Her brother thinks she's wild as hell for this, but, you know, they both get captured by French Canadians, used as bait in probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, where they are tied to the trees. And, uh, yeah, she manages to take down the predator using her her wits and being underestimated, which is pretty great. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought that they they managed to make this artsy movie that's also 
a predator movie and still feels very much like a predator movie while having all this like gorgeous cinematography and I don't know. I I just really enjoyed it. You're right. It really has no right to look as good as it does. It looks like a nature documentary at points where it's just these gorgeous, sweeping vistas. You know, I watched it like for the first time three or four weeks ago, and then I rewatched it to talk about it. And I was still completely captivated by it. And especially like, you know, 20 years ago when The Lord of the Rings was coming out, you know, you would see these like big crane shots of like people walking through these huge vistas you hadn't Mm -hmm. seen anything like that and i think it's really easy for us to uh not us on this podcast but us as a society again to reiterate to really just get kind of comfortable with just that as a visual choice like i I think that's present in the fall also which we were talking about you know that there are these great big vistas and people walking across them and it just it really creates this gigantic scope that i think we shouldn't overlook how do the cg animals fit into that though because i agree but they kind of pulled me out of it because the movie's like very fixated on like historical accuracy and capturing the beauty of the landscape and stuff like that and i understand logically that you cannot have a bear (laughs) set loose hurling people around on screen but like I did find myself slipping out of the imaginary headspace I was supposed to be in and being like, that's a computer bear, not a real bear. Yeah. Um, it's like, that's a computer mountain lion, not a real one. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, that threw me off a little bit in contrast to the, the thing y'all are praising right now, which I, I really, I, I agree that that's like one of the strongest things about the movie is like just the look of the landscape. Um, it's just like so much of what the scene to scene tension is, is defeating these like, well, especially the bear and the mountain lion, these like mm-hmm. CGI animals. And then the the predator himself, like they actually do a good job of mixing practical and CG together and, you know, animatronic type stuff with like some CG smoothing. And it's like, that looks great. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, I have no problems at all with the predator scenes. Um, really like tactile fight choreography, like oh, that, like John so Wick style good. of like thuds and skulls cracking and people hitting the ground like super hard. It's like, okay, this is... Finally, I'm like in it yeah. whenever the predator is set loose. Uh, but I, I did in the lead up a little bit when she's just hunting and like fighting these like animals of the landscape. I, I did a little bit, just got pulled out of it every time. Everything that was on screen was like pure ones and zeros. But the dog was real. The bear got me. That was where I was like mm, the most, I will say. The dog was real. And that's really what counts. I think the dog is interesting because like. Like I was just saying, they were really interested in, like, historical accuracy, Mm -hmm. and they cast this dog by adopting it from a shelter and training it for two weeks um, instead of, you know, like, renting a Hollywood dog. Yeah. Uh And apparently the dog was, like, super chaotic to work with, like you would expect. (laughs) But they adopted it for its look, and it was like, this is what dogs would have looked like in the Comanche Nation at that time. And... I think he he gave a lot of personality mm-hmm. in his look and his sort of chaotic nature and his willingness to please. Love him. <laughs> in a way that did kind of, yeah, help a little bit, like, the way the other animals looked. It was like, oh, yeah, th- there's an animal with some personality. You know, I think after seeing RRR and knowing that this is the direction that we're moving in, as far as, you know, live animals on screen... 
I don't think it bothered me as much as it did, but it definitely was noticeable. I think RRR's a better use of it, though. Like, it's like, okay, if we're going to have CG lions and tigers and bears, oh my. let's push that and do things that you cannot do with those animals in real life. Or like, let's yeah. hurl a tiger at someone's face. Well, the predator, <laughs> like a weapon. the predator was hurling a bear. True. But it doesn't reach that cartoon yeah. over the top headspace that a lot of like, I know, I know like Korean action movies do this a lot. The Tollywood action movies like RRR, um, Chinese mainland China yeah. stuff does this a lot now mm-hmm. too. Like Stephen Chow type stuff where it's like, not concerned anymore with looking real so that yeah. it can do it's like actually more realistically dealing with the tools of the day and like actually pushing yeah. that CGI technology it's like well if that's the world we're in let's make the most ridiculous most CGI thing we can make versus this where it's like trying to be very grounded um, and, and realistic and historically accurate which I don't think is as interesting maybe as far as the historical accuracy, I did have some questions about that, and I haven't yeah. been able to find a satisfactory answer. But I was sort of shocked by the blatant sexism that our heroine experienced, just yeah. because in general, we think of that kind of sexism a lot of the time as being the result of colonialism. Yes. That was my thinking, too. There were a couple of things in it that I was like, is this accurate or is this just more Hollywood whatever? Yeah, because like it it seems strange to me. And I, I do understand that part of my understanding of this as someone who, you know, is descended from colonizers and who grew up in a society in which everything is marred by the ghost and the presence of colonialism. So I understand the way that there has also been like, uh, that Hollywood, especially like when we were growing up also really loves to mythologize and magicalize, uh, native Americans as well. Yeah. Like you, you saw that a lot in the nineties and that's sort of the culture that we grew up in. So I'm, I understand that there's also like a problematic element of presuming like this perfect, peaceful, non-sexist society um, that predates the white man, right? Like that's also probably not 100% accurate, but colonialism and sexism do go hand in hand. Like they are, yeah. you know, sides of the same like die. So I was curious and I have not been able to figure out and maybe a listener can email us and tell us that whether or not such a strict gender roles and not just roles, but like hierarchy where it's like, you actually can't do this because you're a woman, whether or not that's historically accurate at all. Well, you know, I think it was interesting because it's not like they were saying she can't, they were just discouraging her, which I thought, you know, was kind of, kind of a different take on it rather than, you're a woman, you can't do this. It's, hey, there's more to this than just hunting things down. Which, at a certain point... So here's my gripe. And this is just me and my Predator thing. In Predators 1 and 2, the Predator never kills a woman. 
I always took that to be that we're lashing out at men's toxic masculinity, which I thought was going to end up being the thing with this story, is she learns that it's just as powerful to do these sort of domestic things as it is to be a hunter. And I guess Mm. to a certain extent with the medicine and using that as like the way to cool your blood, she does. But to me, it, it, I don't know. I've always just uh, kind of read it as more of an indictment of the sort of violence and how the cycle of violence comes around. So that was kind of one of my gripes is, you know, I've never really saw the Predator as like a sexist figure. It's always been quite the opposite. So for them to make the Predator just assume that she's nothing because she's a woman, you know, that made me sad. I kind of thought the Predator was supposed to be among the toxic males. Like, I thought that it was basically, like, a frat bro going out to prove his manhood. And they're always these kind of, like, teenage boys learning how to hunt and use their, like, weapons on weaker creatures, um, including us. Is that... uh, I'm sorry. Can I ask if I... And I've seen it twice, and maybe this is textual, and I, I really just missed it. Does the Predator think she's not worth killing because she's a woman? Is that something that's in the text? I don't... It doesn't see her as a threat. Yeah, it doesn't so see her as a threat. So she gets to, like, go undetected. Well, when he comes upon them, she is the only one without a weapon. Right. Whenever he come, Like, she's been sort of recaptured by her uh, friends, like her brother and, and the, the other tribesmen. But, but there's another scene where she first kind of I'm going to use a ridiculous word where she bamboozles the predator and she has the guy at gunpoint the predator just like walks past her yeah and that's supposed to be paralleled to the way that the other hunters in her tribe like don't see her as a formidable warrior either and like it's contrasted also with the scene where the predator is watching I believe it's like a wolf chase a rabbit and it only sees the wolf, wolf. yeah I, th- I think she's just getting huh. going by undetected because she's the prey. Huh. Okay. I don't know that the strong suit of the movie is like when it's talking about gender within that community. I think it's more when it's talking about her personality in particular. Like yeah. Her impulsiveness and her um, willingness to think that she is like ready for battle now and yes. like doesn't have training to do. Like she's very skilled. But she has a lot of learning to do, and she gets herself in, like, tricky situations when she's out on her own. Yeah, and totally underestimates what's going on and the danger. Right. Like like a teenager would. Yeah. Um, you know? Like, it's not it's not really her gender. It's more like her hot-headedness. Mm-hmm. So, like, I did also bristle at first when it's like, men hunt, women cook. Yeah. I thought that was, like, probably off from how things actually would have been set up in that community, but, like... The further the movie goes along, the more you get to know her as an individual and not an archetype. And there's like some more shades and, you know, nuances to that dynamic. So maybe maybe they don't want her hunting in particular, not because she's a woman, but because she like really puts herself at risk in like needless situations. Yeah. So it gives itself a little bit of an out there. That line was funny because it was delivered by like just a teenage bro. (laughs) So it's like, I don't know how much to buy into that. Yeah, there's definitely this element of like, you know, 
oh, we're not going to be long enough to need a cook while we're out in the woods. Ha ha, stay here. But I think, like, legitimately part of what's happening is also that, like, she is smarter in different ways. Like, you know, even in that first scene with her brother where he's, like, going on and on and they're both tracking the hawk and he goes ahead and shoots it before she does. But then she points out that now he has to cross the river, that she was capable of doing more long-term planning in her hunt, which is ultimately what, like, setting the trap with the predator, what she's able to do. And, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that obviously I've already read or encountered many sexist takes on this movie about how... Oh, she couldn't do it then, and later she could. It's like, wow, everyone is real dumb these days. <laughs> Where it's like, yeah, that's a, that's called pro- that's like called character progression. It's, it's sort growth. of the cornerstone of narrative. But people are so poisoned by like whatever whatever nonsensical hot take, um, facts and logic, uh, critic oh they have God. as their particular favorite that like they literally can't just be like oh this is a movie about a person who learns and grows and develops a skill because it's a woman who changes over time it has to be who heard her she's a mary sue women don't change i'm picturing a a collage of uh, youtube critics like all white guys making puzzled faces at like the uh, screenshot of the trailer which i feel like happens every single time one of these movies comes out yeah i think it's interesting though especially like did you were we watching the same movie like we see her go through and learn from mistakes it's not like it's just this sudden transformation by the end of the movie it doesn't come out of nowhere see but what you're saying is that women are capable of learning and that's just not realistic yeah you're right you're right i mean you are also presuming that people were actually watching the movie and not looking at their phone which um in a very like wordless film like this like there aren't a lot of dialogue exchanges yeah. like mm-hmm. is a killer yeah like you really need to actually keep your eyes glued to the screen they're not going to spell out every yeah. thematic and dramatic development i turned you. off my phone so smart yeah and i watched it in a group where we were all keeping each other accountable when a lot of people were saying that this is the kind of movie that deserves to be in a theater instead of going straight to streaming which you know disney owns whatever Fox subsidiary this is a part of now. So they dumped it straight to Hulu. You know, I, I think people were thinking of those like big vistas and those like action complicated, yeah. like choreography scenes. But I was thinking just like being in a theater and not having access to like other distractions is like mostly what you need here. Yeah. <laughs> I understand that. And I do think it's a movie that's kind of like all sort of action movies, I think are built to watch together like they're such a spectacle and they're like fun it's not i don't know and i know y'all see movies by yourselves a lot and i i understand that i'm just saying like i i do feel like it's more of like a group after the movie you can talk about it sort of movie you know because i feel like it's got it's got a lot of sides to it yeah that's why i like having a podcast Uh yeah yeah And I'm not very interested in growing the podcast audience. I'm just like treating this like a book club at this point. Oh, like I, yeah. <laughs> I need someone to talk to once a week. I love it. I'm into it. Uh, yeah. Can we uh, t- 
talk about the scene in, in the burn forest with the French Canadians because you mentioned the uh, fight choreography and you know for a while there I feel like I was watching like modern day action movies and being like why are these fight scenes so bad and I always get excited when I watch things like this where it's so clearly planned out and thought out and then add in like this beautiful cinematography and it's just like wow this is so violent and also looks so good I honestly think that fight choreography has gotten better in mainstream action movies but only since John Wick I'm not like a John Wick super fan or anything but like that is what I've heard there have been a few movies directed by stunt choreographers yeah since the two stunt choreographers directed that one mm-hmm. and it really shows like I, I feel like maybe 15 years ago yeah you have more of those close shots and quick cuts that were just like very i think confusing that's what and, i'm like, thinking you of. Couldn't tell what it was i think i'm, I'm yeah old. the bornification of everything yeah right. i think that's more what i'm citing as terrible fight scenes is just yeah because i have heard and i have noticed you know fight scenes have gotten better in movies and more easily followed and i'm very glad to see it and to see it put to such good use and you know have those sort of professions respected because you know people practice this stuff and you know film is a craft and it feels it felt real lazy i guess to have these unwatchable like unfollowable fight scenes in action movies especially and i will say that you're not wrong that it's also worse in certain corners or of the uh film landscape especially Mm -hmm. like the um jurassic world movies where like you can just go find a twitter thread where they're like i dare you to figure out who's supposed to be the focus in this shot (laughs) i dare you to try and keep track of where everyone is supposed to be because it actually is impossible it like confuses your brain with the editing and i remember specifically when like taken three came out someone pulled like a clip of liam neeson just like climbing a fence that for some reason it was like seven seconds long and had 15 cuts in it you know it's just like why and also what i do think that um french fur trapper showdown where the predator just like tears through the entire (laughs) uh army of them is very satisfying and it reminded me of why the first predator movie is like not that satisfying until it gets cooking in the third act as well Mm -hmm. because like the entire setup of both this one and the first one and it's kind of mirrored almost as if it's like only paying attention to how the filmmaking is done in that one is like the predator is a mystery yeah you're not really sure what you're looking at for a while and then all bets are off once it's just him and arnold facing off in the in the third act mm-hmm. this is the same way like the movie builds a lot of slow tension even though we all know what the predator is at this point he's kind of like obfuscated from the camera and like we're sort of figuring it out along with our protagonist. And by the end, I was like, oh, yeah, this is why these movies are fun. Yeah. Uh, when there's like a lot of like brain smashing and skin ripping and throat crushing and everything else that he does with more primitive weapons than yeah. what we see in like later Predator movies. At least for this one, though, I feel like while the audience all knows the Predator and what the Predator is, I do think that. There is a certain amount of letting the audience be tricked into generally underestimating, you know, the capabilities of 
these people and their weapons to take down the Predator, even though we know it's going to happen. But what if it doesn't, you know? Um, especially as we see the Predator tear through these French people with all these weapons, the guns, even if the guns you have to take forever to <laughs> load and reshoot. Which was kind of always the point, yeah. right? If I'm remembering Predator correctly, and it has been a long time, yeah. part of that is that like they have to, because it's doodle doodle about Vietnam, right? So like, you know, it is sort of about a larger, more technologically capable um, being from a different culture coming in and ultimately being defeated by quote unquote more primitive weapons and primitive means. So like that is sort of the 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 point of this, which was another thing that made no sense about the people complaining about this movie, where they're like, oh, here, 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 you know, it's like, no, I mean, it's very much like Predator from the yeah. East, actually. It's not yeah. that different. I was referring to the Predator's weapons being more primitive than later movies, oh, right? Because yeah. he has like bows and arrows. Right, right, right. He's no, got I, bows and I, arrows I and his Sorry. big old spear, spear, not spear. Uh, I'm just making sure I wasn't like insulting the indigenous no, people no. of America. No, no, I was just saying like, <laughs> you are watching people take down the Predator with, you know, not guns. You Traps. Know? Yeah. Yeah, Arnold has to like stop going with brute force mm-hmm. in the original and yeah. like, um, you know, use ingenuity and like... You know, very like primal, just his body and yeah. the, the environment. He's like, "You're on my home turf. I'm going to use the environment we're in against you." Yeah, trees, big old like log, swinging log things. Yeah, I gotta say, I really like the design of the predator as a creature, and I understand why it's become as iconic as the xenomorphs. Mm-hmm. Um, if not only through corporate synergy of pairing them up for a couple of movies, but I don't think the movies are as good as the creature design usually. And like, even as someone who loves Arnold Schwarzenegger, the predator is not the first movie I go to for him. You're and such then, a big fan of commando. I know. Oh, Commando's the best. <laughs> That's not even See, I always go to Terminator. So the first Terminator also yeah. a five-star classic. Yeah. Um, I think the last two predator movies in particular were horrifically bad. Like, the Adrian Brody one was just dull, and then the Shane Black one was, like, insulting and idiotic. Wow. I Were they not the same? Were those two separate movies? I thought they were the same movie. Yes. They're two separate ones? Oh, my God. The Adrian Brody one was, like, on the Predator planet, and it was very, like, desolate Uh-oh. and just boring. Yeah, I and haven't And the Shane Black one either. was goofier, and, you know, his, his movies always almost tip into cruelty in a way that's, like playing with the line of good taste and uh that one was just like crossed the line and went way beyond it and i don't know just hated that film i i guess i'm just saying i feel encouraged to hear you say that you really only need to watch predator and prey to sort of get it because i always feel like i'm kind of missing something with this series where it's like yeah the creature's cool but this sort of like survivalist mono mono fight never is that compelling to me in these movies and like I kind of always want the movies to be a little better than they are. I, I like this one about as much as the first one. I think they're both about on par and I think they're pretty good, but I'm not like in love with them as much as I am in love with the design of the predator itself. That's fair. I mean, the predator is just super, I love it. It's so gross. I'm so into it. 
<laughs> so I understand that 100%. I also just really enjoy the movies. I don't know. It's another one of those sort of things where we talked about this when I was talking about watching Rambo for the first time, where sometimes I just avoid action movies. I'm like, oh, it's going to be too macho. And then I watch them and I love them. And I'm like, am I secretly macho on the inside? Am I secretly a bro? Well, stuff like Commando and like maybe even like Hard Boiled and like some other macho action movies we've talked about, like, they're so macho. I mean, RRR, I would throw in there too. They're so macho. It's like cartoonish. It's like. The same way that drag is an exaggeration of femininity or pro wrestling is an exaggeration of masculinity as well. Like they push into the ridiculous and push into caricature. Yeah. That, that's the like appeal I feel for those like, especially the 80s Reagan era ones. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the first Predator qualifies for that. Yeah. Uh, this one is obviously taking a completely different tact and it kind of has to. It does. To, yeah. Like, reinvigorate it. Yeah. I don't think that the same sort of macho thing would like I feel like this one has drawn such a varied audience like people I know who I know aren't super into like I said the macho action movies I'm actually into despite my best wishes uh have really loved this one like people I didn't even think of like being interested in the Predator series are like oh yeah that was really good I'm like wait what (laughs) um so there is that. I I don't think it would have the same draw. I think it would be, you know, stale in a way. I like the I like the freshness and I like I like the visuals. And I, I thought it I don't know. I really, really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. Wait, so they go to the Predator Planet in the Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm that's sure. what I'm stuck on. Wow. Excuse me. Maybe I'm misremembering that movie was like over a decade ago. Yeah, I'm not I'm, make I, I just pulled up it, the Predator but... franchise, and I'm like, oh yeah, there's an eight-year gap between yeah. the movie that you and I, Ali, thought was the same movie. Yeah, we thought it was the same movie. Wow. I'm going to read from the Wikipedia page of Predators 2010. The film follows an ensemble cast of characters, including Adrian Brody, a mercenary who appears in an unidentified jungle among other proficient killers. They find they've been abducted and placed on a planet which acts as a game reserve for two warring tribes of extraterrestrial killers. And actively look for a way to return to Earth. So it's like a most dangerous game huh. on a Predator planet. But it's not good? I found it very boring, but it, mm. I mean, 2010 was a very long time ago, so maybe I'm mistaken. I don't know. Huh. I, I believe it. I believe it could be boring. I'd put it in the same genre as um, Terminator. What was the one McGee did? Uh, Terminator Salvation. Oh. It's that kind of a boring film. Oh. It's very drab. Wait, there are people who who dislike Terminator Salvation for reasons other than its temporal mechanics. <laughs> Brandon. I'm just kidding. Why would you hire McGee for that movie and then make it the most gray, momentum-free slog like that? Like, I don't think he's a great director, but if he has any strengths, it's in that, like, hyperkinetic, like, Sugar Rush style. Yeah. So, like, why would you make him, like, slow it down and get serious? That is not his forte. No, I mean, you're you're 100% correct that that was a, a, a weird call. Although now I, I'm imagining, like, if he had been given free reign to make Terminator Salvation and it's, like, as colorful as Charlie's Angels full throttle. I would be a fan, not gonna lie. I think it's pretty smart to return to basics with Predator, though, in a way that, like, maybe the last Terminator movie did as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, where it got very Cameron again in that last one. 
this one might be the first Predator movie that a lot of people see. Like a lot of people who aren't interested in it usually might be interested in, you know, it being less macho or just the fact that it is like an indigenous community at the forefront. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of ways in which the movie is like a back to basic story, but it's pulling in a new audience. So it it's like introducing them to that formula for the first time. Um, and I, I do like that horror has been since the genre started in Hollywood, it has been a way for less producer friendly communities to get representation on camera. Yeah. Um, and I, I have seen recently like movies like uh blood quantum a few years ago, or there's one that came out um, this year at festivals called slashback that I'm looking forward to where it's like, the indigenous stories that we have not been seeing in like mainstream cinema are like finally coming to screens, but it's through this like back door of these like pre-established genre structures. And it, it's kind of cool to see them use like the predator IP to do that. Like, yeah. I, I like, I think it speaks well to horror that it, it's a marketable enough thing that you can, you can convince these like older white producers to green light these indigenous stories. And I think this one's, as respectful as it can be within that industry. Yeah. Even though we were, we started off this conversation saying that, you know, a lot of it felt very um, girl bossy in a colonizer mind kind of way. But uh, I think it speaks well to horror as a genre that these kinds of things are pushing for that representation in a way that no other genre or area of like modern filmmaking are. And a lot of people seem to have watched it, which is very exciting. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't know that Slashback or Blood Quantum got the same amount of eyes. So I think the other thing, um, especially, you know, representation-wise that I appreciated is that it's a movie with a mostly indigenous cast that there was not a single actor that was also in Reservation Dogs, which for some reason is very difficult <laughs> For uh, producers and <laughs> casting directors, apparently. I will say if you watch interviews with the cast, like her himbo brother has a very similar sense of humor and is very like easygoing in a way that some of the characters in that show are. Yeah. Like he would fit right in with that cast uh, more than anyone else. Oh, here, yeah. Yeah. He definitely he seems like he's got that sort of energy. I, I liked his character because I liked that he was very supportive of his sister while also, you know, being level-headed and taking control. I thought he was a good leader, which is why it's so upsetting that he does eventually get killed by the Predator. But yes, I, I, I could see him having those vibes. I guess there are ways in which the industry will only give so much leeway, though, because like Dan Trachtenberg, the director, fought for the film to be entirely in the Comanche language. Yeah. And they did it a little bit at the beginning, but... Um, the only way to watch it in that language is in a dub that they did post-production. So they got some funds for it, but it wasn't like the default version of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So sad. It's like watching RR and Hindi because Netflix, that's the dub they got. Yeah. It's a shame. Did anyone watch the Comanche dub or do we all watch the English? Um, I wanted to watch that as the original version. Or like my original like watch through and I couldn't sell everybody on doing the subtitles and then I was going to watch it for the second viewing and then ended up not uh, only because I needed to do watch it while doing other things since it was my second time through 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched the English version. Me too, because I thought the dub would be distracting, but there's really not a lot of dialogue, so it probably would have been fine. Yeah. I kind of regret my decision. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this. I thought it was great. I had a lot of fun. I also thought it was good. I just needed some reasons to complain oh, so that there please? was like, something to talk no, about. No, please complain. Because <laughs> it's a very simple setup, you know? So I need to poke some I holes. I was going to say... And, like, Test it out. Are we are we talking about movies on the internet if we're not complaining about them? I thought right, that was right, the rules. Right. You're supposed to just poke all the holes in it and not really gas it up. But I think all three of us enjoyed this yeah, and would recommend it. I definitely yeah, I loved recommend it. it. Absolutely. And you know what else you love? Yeah, is this the part all where five you, of the screen movies? This is the part where you normally do the promo, but yeah, you're you're hesitant. <laughs> Next week, Brandon is talking about all five of the screen movies without Boomer. I can't wait for uh, three weeks from now when, when y'all do a Star Trek episode without me or Allie. <laughs> <laughs> that would be outrageous. Finally, I could talk about Nemesis. <laughs> oh, man. Nemesis was on TV the other day, and I watched I watched about 15 minutes of it and then gave up. I was like, oh, this movie is so bad. Honestly, I would listen to them talk about Star Trek without us. Allie, don't encourage them. I mean, we got to talk about Star Trek without them. I would listen to it. I'm just saying. I think I think it would be interesting to see their takes as like people who haven't been fans forever and ever. But yes, sorry. Sorry, I won't give them any more ideas. I'm sorry, you're just getting betrayed all over the place. Maybe maybe eventually we'll watch like student bodies on here and that'll be a chance to talk about horror parodies in general. And specifically, you know, my favorite horror franchise screen. I'm more of a staff guy. They're so good. It's so good.